Welcome to episode 9 of the Wholesome Business Podcast. I'm Tom Greenwood from WholegrainDigital.com. This week I went to Southampton to meet with Dennis Durfel from Reap Systems, a specialist uh, technology company in the field of lithium-ion batteries and particularly focused on sustainable transportation. We met Dennis recently uh, through the Ethical Film Club, where he was a guest speaker for the film Revenge of the Electric Car, and he shared a lot of his experience, personal experience and professional experience from the last couple of decades um, on electric vehicle technology. And so I really was keen to get him on the podcast and sit down with him and get his thoughts on uh, sustainable innovation, um, which is a really interesting topic that I've been involved in for around 10 years and seen some people succeed and a lot of people not really succeed. So it's great to see Dennis running a business specifically in this field. I wanted to get his thoughts on that, um, find out what the challenges are of making sustainable innovation commercially viable. Um, and also to hear more about his current project, Project Venice. Um, where they're taking a Venice taxi boat and developing a drop-in hybrid electric system um, and using Venice really as a sort of pilot location where they, they can test out this new technology, prove it to the industry, um, they can reduce emissions, they can reduce fuel costs, they can reduce maintenance costs, they can reduce noise pollution, they can reduce vibration damage to the buildings. So many benefits that can be gained, but until somebody proves it... Um, no one's taking up this technology. So Dennis has taken it upon himself to do that. Um, we'll talk a bit about that at the end of the podcast. Um, but he's got an Indiegogo campaign out to uh, to help fund this project that he's really he's really funding this himself um, out of his own pocket. So if you go on Indiegogo, search for Project Venice, um, you'll find out all about it and uh, really well worth supporting. Okay, over to over to Dennis. I thought it'd be good to go back to the beginning um, yeah. and just find out sort of where your interest in sustainable innovation came from and how how you sort of came on this journey to where you are now with Reap Systems. Yes, I think I think there were quite a few different topics coming together over you know the course of my life. But uh, I I um, I worked as a as a soldier, surprisingly, as a soldier in the German army uh, in repair and maintenance. Uh, which has got nothing to do with sustainability, I suspect. Um, <laughs> um, and and then one incident was that I I bought an electric vehicle at the time, mainly out of interest. I thought, oh, this looks, you know, fun and interesting. Yeah. And I'm I'm an engineer, so I'm interested in technology, and I found it just interesting. Was that just was that the Golf? That you no, that was a, a very small one seater called uh, City L. It was uh, designed by a guy in Denmark, mm-hmm. um, I think about 25 years ago yeah. already. Uh, it, they are still manufactured in Germany now by a small company, um, and it cost me 5,000 Deutschmark, which nowadays money would be about 1,500 pounds, oh, wow. second-hand yeah. with new batteries, and it looked like Even fun. now that sounds like a bargain. It, looked like it was a bargain. It was a even convertible, so you could... Open it up and drive around in the open yeah. without any noise and you know listening to the birds while you were driving. It it, it was fast enough. It was doing about um, forty miles an hour. Yeah. And and what actually happened is my 
girlfriend at the time, she was scared driving it initially because it looked too different. Yeah. And it looked small and she felt, well, how does it feel if you're next to a big lorry? You, know, maybe you feel kind of vulnerable. Feel, you feel vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, but I think one day our other car was broken down or something and then she had to use this electric, small electric car. Uh, and from then on, she wanted to use it every day. <laughs> um, because it was really fun to drive. Yeah. Um, and you feel so, because it is small, but you felt really nippy and the silence and it costs nothing to, to operate. And yeah. Run. I think that's what a lot of people find with electric vehicles. You've got to they, drive it. Yeah. So they don't get it until they drive one and then suddenly exactly. there's no going back. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is, this is an important understanding for any sustainable or any change really. People, uh, I mean, often investors come and say, oh, you've got to give your presentation. What's the market size? And you say, well, with this sort of things, I don't know. Yeah. Because if I go out and ask people, what's, you know, would you buy one of these? They would say, no. Why would they? You know, they're yeah. happy with what they've got. And I think, I think even Steve Jobs was saying something similar from Apple, saying, you know, if, if I ask the customer what they want, they don't know what they want. I yeah. Mean, yeah, there's, sounds... a, there's a famous quote, I think it's from Henry Ford, where he said, if I ask people they'd wanted, they'd say, faster horses. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, so he developed the car. We used that quote in our crowdfunding campaign uh, for the project. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> we had the Steve uh, Jobs quote didn't quite fit so well, but yeah. it's, it's a similar mindset, and I think even, surprisingly, even some entrepreneurs don't understand this. You know, they keep asking me for, you know, what's, what's the business case, how big is the market, and you say, well, eventually the market is everyone because we should all be driving these things. If you start yeah. thinking in a sustainable way, we've got to st stop using fossil fuels. Yeah. And the only replacement for fossil fuels are uh, biofuels, but unfortunately they are very expensive to make uh, because they need a massive amounts of land in order to produce the crops to then make exactly. biofuels. Uh, another option could, could, of course, be a liquefying hydrogen somewhere in the desert, but for some reason no one has invested in that yet. Uh, it, it also needs a massive distribution chain, which isn't there, yeah. uh, and it's also new technology with new risks. Do you think there's a big disconnect between climate science on one hand, which is telling us where we need to be, and the sort of business thinking, which is very much focused on the here and now, how can I make profit, um, and they're not... There's not like a pathway from one to the other. But yes. Do you know what I mean? The business I, people yeah, aren't looking know. at climate science no, and saying, I, I, well, I, I, in 2050, I, we need to be zero carbon. Yeah. And I, I, yes, I know what you mean. And I like the word, dis the word disconnect. I think disconnect is one of the big root causes for you know, our incapability of making the change that is required. Um, for example, I... I have a very good friend who works as an environmental, um, what's it called, officer, I think, yeah. at the National Oceanography Center. Okay. So her responsibility is to reduce the footprint of the National Oceanography Center. Yeah. And uh, NOC. Um, at NOC, you've got all these environmental scientists working. Yes, so drilling in the Arctic and finding out what's happening. Yeah. And the funny thing is that these people who get paid for doing research on so climate scientists basically getting yeah. paid by the public for doing research on climate change don't seem to be very interested in saving energy themselves right okay yes. that's interesting which is 
actually quite shocking, but it shows how disconnected we are. I think our world nowadays is, is so complex that we don't really understand our own actions and the implications of our own actions. Yeah. So this, this makes it quite difficult. Um, coming back to this electric vehicle, we drove it and we found it really, really fun to drive and very cheap. And so we wondered, why isn't everyone driving this? Yeah. And uh, we actually managed to convince a few friends around us. So surprisingly, within the German army, we suddenly had a group of people driving small electric vehicles, which doesn't really, you know, you, when you think about a soldier, it wouldn't first come to your mind that they are all driving small electric vehicles. But And we found it... Um, an electric vehicle club uh, in that town. So we had to binge, I think now they've got about 40 members okay. and organizing tours with these electric vehicles. There were some other vehicles, but yeah. at the time there was not so, not so much choice. And we actually tried to go out and let people drive these vehicles. So we organized uh, displays where we, you know, handed out leaflets on weekends uh, and said, okay, we'll be displaying these cars, you can test drive them, because we were convinced you've got to drive to be convinced. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember, remember one event where we organized this display, and I think you know, we handed out thousands of leaflets over the weeks. And so here came the event, and I think three people turned up. <laughs> so, I mean, we had a yeah. good time, you know, we yeah. met again, and... You know, we are standing there, but it, it was shocking and just showing how, you know, showing the lack of interest potentially, yeah. or, or maybe the, you know, people are too busy with their lives, I suppose, um, to to do something like this. Uh, or maybe we were not very good at marketing, also possible. But then also I realized there's actually no point trying to sell electric vehicles because I continued that when I came to Britain and... 2001. Yeah. Uh, we went to the Winchester Alternative Transport Day every year. I went yeah. to many shows. I had, by that time, I now had two electric vehicles myself, and we had one from the university which we converted to lithium ion batteries at the time. And so we displayed them um, and tried to sell the electric vehicle or the idea of the electric vehicle. But yeah. I realized there's no point trying to sell something if people can't really buy it. Yeah. And so I then became much more. Well, what I then said is, okay, we really got to develop the technology, got to develop better electric vehicles, better cars, um, and only then you can sell. So it's showing this catch-22 situation. You, Yes, people don't ask for it, so nobody's making it. Yeah. Nobody's making it, nobody's going to ask for it. And um, that's what I then did, and that's why we founded Reap Systems, to say, okay, there's the lithium-ion battery is around, uh, it can make a really big difference because it is such a much better battery uh, compared to lead acid or any of the others. Um, and we developed the missing piece at the time. So there was right. the lithium-ion cells, they were manufactured. People know how to make cars and motors and inverters and all the bits that you need for an electric car. The missing piece was battery management system. And we developed an off-the-shelf battery management system at the time which we sold to I would say about 150 projects worldwide uh, for converting whether solar cars or making small vehicles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, was that difficult setting up a business in sort of a, a new, new field? Effectively, was it hard to sort of find funding and customers and so on? Well, at that time, 
uh, funding was kind of impossible. <laughs> uh, at that time, there was no spin-out mechanism for the universities, yeah. unfortunately. Um, I was relatively new in the UK still. I was This was in 2003, so I didn't really know anyone. Yeah. I didn't really know how funding mechanisms work, whom to approach. And I think without contacts, it's fantastically difficult. Uh, if you went to investors and said, well, here's an idea, they would say, the questions I mentioned earlier, how much money is it going to make us by when? Yeah. Which nobody could answer at the time. Um, and so we decided we'll go for the organic approach. We, 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 we did start on our kitchen table. You know, yeah. We had one charger from China blowing up on the kitchen table. <laughs> and at some point I got so annoyed because every time we wanted to eat, we had to remove the stuff from the kitchen table and then eat. And, and so we then decided to eat on the sofa and keep working on the kitchen table. And until we got the first bigger contract, this is when we then converted our garage to a lab. Yeah. And then eventually we converted the whole house into a business. We employed people inside the house. And eventually that got really annoying uh, because we were sharing everything basically with the employees. <laughs> um, <laughs> you sort of no longer have a home. You just have a business. Yeah, there premises. was no home. I think I think the only home was was the bedroom. Uh, you know, we had a lock on the bedroom, so in case someone came in early from the employees, at least we didn't have to get up or something. Um, so we then rented our first business premises. So it has been an organic growth company. Yeah. Since then, for now thirteen years, uh, and we uh, literally started with hundred pounds. So we. I think, you know, we always try to re do a really good job for the customer, Yeah. Uh, be very efficient and effective, make no mistakes, get it right first time. All the principles Toyota has been using themselves to become really big, um, to then make a bit of money, reinvest it into the business and, and do something with that. Yeah. I think it um, started becoming really difficult when when we had to pay for overheads, like business premises, uh, employees. Because um, that's quite a jump for any sort of business, isn't it, when you start off yeah. and it's it's the founders are effectively working for almost nothing and they're working from home yeah. and it's just about getting the work done and trying to get someone yeah. to pay for it. Um, but that's quite a big leap when you have to start employing people and renting premises. And that's stuff. right. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, business... I mean, one of the reasons for founding REAP was when I spent my time at the university, uh, even the university didn't really see, apart from my supervisor who supported me, but the university at a bigger scale didn't really see any uh, innovation in electric vehicle technology or in battery technology right. at that okay. time. They believed in fuel cells. Um, and it wasn't really industrial research anyway. So... For me, it wasn't really a place to stay. Yeah. Um, I ended up, even for my research at the time, I ended up doing quite a lot of that work on my driveway at home in the rain because there was no space at the university for the car anymore. Um, although that car got a lot of publicity at the time, it was the first serious hybrid electric plug-in vehicle with lithium-ion batteries, large lithium-ion batteries back in 2002, 2003. Okay. So it was on BBC. The press was very interested in this because simulation results showed that that could do about 250 miles per gallon fuel equivalent 
including the electricity use, right? wow. so, which which is in, in in urban traffic, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and that was a prototype vehicle. There was a prototype, uh, and I did a lot of simulation and testing on the large lithium-ion batteries. And I think I generated a lot of interest. In 2002, I gave a, a presentation in Korea on the advanced automotive battery, conf uh, no, electric vehicle symposium that was, right. uh, about the idea of using these large lithium-ion batteries for making serious hybrid electric vehicles with plug-in capability. And I call that concept peace of mind electric vehicle because it is virtually electric vehicle is always driving electric but you can also use it for longer journeys and people were laughing at it at the time but it is what bmw is now offering in, in their i3 it is what uh, uh um um mitsubishi is putting into the uh, outlander yeah yeah PhD. and and in america you've got things and, like the plug-in prius and the, and the plug-in um, prius is, is a similar yeah almost similar concept yeah. but um, um but when i presented it that was after about half a year of of research on what future mobility is going to look like so it yeah. wasn't just a stupid idea there was actually a lot of thinking uh, behind it but again it, it shows that even scientists you know electric vehicle symposium is full of people with doctors and professors and you know high level degrees doing yeah. nothing but research even scientists sometimes don't have a vision yeah you know they don't get it they're too close to the problem too, too close much. to the problem yeah. and, and and maybe nowadays some of them are even too close to just having a good life and earning good money yeah unfortunately i mean this is not what scientists should be about in my opinion so um yeah so it's so then i saw lots of ideas i think like you said you know before last time we met you, you mentioned when you left university, you had all this enthusiasm, ideas, and want to change the world and change the place. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw the same during my PhD. I saw all these great ideas and this enthusiasm. I thought, why is none of this happening? Yeah. It's not just sustainability. There were other ideas as well, which could be good, but it doesn't happen. So having been a soldier, then having done a PhD, so knowing nothing about business at all, I mean, money to me was basically like a foreign word, a, yeah. a foreign word almost, uh, you know, like a, from a different language. I thought, well, it can't be that difficult. Let's start a business <laughs> and let's try. I think sometimes you need to be a bit naive in order to make that leap. Well, don't you? I think if, if I hadn't been naive, I, I, now I wouldn't start a business again, although now it would be easier because <laughs> now I know a few things, but better. Um, but I thought, well, it can't be that difficult. I want to find out why that is difficult you know yeah. what, what's difficult about it i thought it must be difficult because otherwise it would happen more often yeah yes yeah. there would be more good things so i just deliberately wanted to find out what's difficult about starting a business and not only not only i wanted to start a business but also i wanted to start a business that works differently and that um does sustainable things so sustainability was the key missionary yeah. of Reap Systems um, and um, uh, well, or basically questioning status quo you know never being happy with what we've got there must be a better way of doing things this this is really the foundation for Reap Systems this is what keeps us going yeah in the it's pushing those boundaries and... yeah yeah um, 
Yeah, so that's what we did. I think I think nowadays I know a little bit better what's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't quite put my finger on it uh, because if I could, then one could do something about it. Yeah, more easily. It's still a little bit difficult to understand. Um, and yeah, I think I've always been quite good at seeing other people's perspective. So I can see some of the movements the government is taking. And I think, yes, it makes sense from their point of view. They are actually trying to do something about it, yeah. I think. It's just not working. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work like this. Um, do you think there are other things that maybe governments need to do in order to sort of almost level the playing field? So some people are talking about, you know, carbon tax or something like that that effectively makes renewable energy cost competitive. So instead of subsidizing renewables, you, you tax pollution to sort okay. of balance things out. What, what's your thoughts on those types of approaches? Well, there are things that have helped, I guess. Uh, I mean, tightening up some emission rules can help. Yeah. Um, some taxes can help, you know, taxes on, 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 on fuel, etc. But generally, I think one of the issues is that the the system, so with the governments as we have it at the moment, yeah. is hundreds, if not thousands. Well, it's very old. <laughs> yeah, It's a very old system. But many things have happened in the meantime. I mean, nowadays we do have social media. Um, it's easier to get to the masses. Uh, it's, you know, there yeah. are, there are great systems like uh, change.org, etc., where people can get together and do something for a good cause yeah. uh, that didn't exist what, six years ago, didn't even exist. Yeah, I yeah. Think. and they've had a lot of impact. Um, and, you know, you have lots of charities around where people basically vote for what they want to see happening. Uh, so to a certain extent, I think the government feels a little bit, I don't, I don't want to say redundant, but many of the functions the government is taking and taking lots of tax money for yeah. are not really, maybe not really necessary anymore mm -hmm. nowadays. Yeah. Um, but of course, they don't want to make themselves redundant. <laughs> uh, but I think they should. Yeah. I think they should. The taxes are too high and the taxes work in the wrong way. Uh, I think someone seriously needs to rethink the tax system from ground up. I'm not, not, not normally a friend of... Uh, big and fundamental changes. I quite like the idea of uh, continuous improvements. Uh, uh, and I think it could work. I, I just see some of these improvements going in the wrong direction yeah. at the moment. They're not really improvements. Um, for example, I mean, this is just thinking really out of the box. Value-added tax. What's actually the point? Um, Penalising someone for adding value, yeah. if you think about it. If you take the wording literally, yeah. Well, it is literally. Then that's what it is. Because yeah. what a business should be doing is they should take something coming in, adding value to it, and selling it on. Yeah. This is what the business should be about. Business should not be about making someone rich and making someone else poor. It should literally be about adding value yeah. and doing that in a very efficient and effective way, you know, for the benefit of the customer. Yeah. Um, 
and and in return for that that business you know for for the vision and belief that was necessary to build that business that investor should be getting in return on investment which is basically paying for his pension and i think many many years ago this is what businesses were about and there are still some businesses in my opinion that work that way yeah. you know i i think for example that toyota works that way and they have got ingrained in their principles some principles saying first we focus on the value that we're adding yeah and then we see how we can make money with it and i think this is how sustainability could work because eventually we all need sustainable stuff yeah uh, so the market is as big as we have people around on this planet so nobody needs to ask how big the market is that is the market size um all we got to figure out is how we get there and how we produce a return on investment. I think it's a much better way of looking at it, the yeah. way Toyota works and some other companies, you know, often family businesses for some reason. Um, then, then trying to look, you know, before you even have an idea, you try to think about how, how you can make yourself rich. I think that's, that's not going to work um, for very much longer. So, yeah, so I like the Toyota principles. They are ingrained in our principles as well. They make a lot yeah. of sense to me. They are foundations of sustainability, in my opinion. You know, they've got a decent way of dealing with their employees and people. They, they got to work and they got to work hard and they do have to do a good job, uh, but everyone gets given a chance. Um, and I think it's very much that you, you work hard for the benefit of everybody within the organization yeah. but then in return the organization looks after you that's it so it's, a, it's exactly. very much a two-way relationship it, it, yeah. it, it is, a, is a nice relationship but this value-added tax you know that that i think is just an example of something that doesn't really seem to make sense yeah if you think about it i think the way the government should be looking at this is saying okay we are providing a platform on which you can do business and the uk or whatever government we are talking about is providing yeah. a certain platform because they think this is a good platform to work on. Yeah. And if it's a good platform, they should be getting something in return. But maybe I wouldn't call it a tax. It's almost like providing a service, actually. Yeah. So instead of calling it value-added tax, they should call it value-added service provider, yeah. for example. Then what they could be doing, I mean, this honestly is probably not going to happen in the next year, obviously. But <laughs> It's just thinking outside the box what should happen. So we rename value added tax and obviously got to be much lower as well because uh, our crowdfunding is on Indiegogo. They take 8%. Yes, they yeah. don't take 20. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's only 8. <laughs> um, other things that should happen is everything that makes a contribution to the, you know, is, is, is to the benefit of the society should be getting something you know, some subsidy from the government, a small yeah. subsidy, you know, just to help that. And everything that is harming the greater good and, and the society, they should be paying for it. Yeah? Yeah. So say, if, if you are flying around, that has got lots of impact on many, many things. I'm sure with nowadays technology, someone can work out what that impact is. Uh, ideally, if Yeah, and I think people already have. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's noise, it's, you know, pollution, it's... Uh, oil consumption you know consumption etc etc uh and if since that isn't 
paid for in our normal market forces, and I can explain this in a minute, yeah. um, the government should be saying, okay, you know, this costs that and that much. Yeah. And that would automatically, and again, that is a service they are providing so they can take a cut, that's fine. Yeah. And there's, there's a clear logic to it that there's a clear logic. There, yeah. There's, um, there's a cost to society of people doing those things, yes. causing noise and air pollution and so on. So someone has to pay for that. So it should be the people causing, causing those problems. problems. Yeah. And so that's so you, the tax is very fair in that sense. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think that could be the modern tax. And I, I don't know which country can do this first. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, Probably Bhutan or something. Bhutan, yeah. Got to be maybe a small test uh, somewhere on a tiny island. Um, maybe once the Isle of Wight is independent, you know, yeah. then they can do it, uh, of course. Um, but um, it's, I think it's an interesting thought, and maybe when people do the continuous improvement on their tax system and on the whole government system, they can bear this in mind and maybe walk in the right direction. That's yeah. much easier, of course, than making a really big change. Yeah. Um, because big changes are always a big risk. Yeah. Uh, and they can go really wrong. And I mean, we live in a still in a very stable world. Well, at least here in the UK, you know, we have, don't have any big wars right on our doorstep. Uh, people can go to work in the morning, yeah, enjoy yeah. a nice day um, on the weekends, etc. Uh, compared to some other countries. So we shouldn't complain too much. Yeah. And I think it's a big risk to make a too big change. So my radical thinking wasn't a serious suggestion. But I think... More about setting a direction. Yeah, I think whenever they make a change, they should really say, well, we should stop increasing the VAT because it makes no sense. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and the way we are taxing businesses at the moment, I think, doesn't make sense much either because um, basically it's very hard for business to grow without outside investment. Yeah. It's kind of the system is, is geared towards um, making sure that the people who always were rich can stay rich, yeah. which is fine if they build up their empire themselves, you know, like Ellen Sugar did from nothing. Um, but I think he would agree that, you know, we all should continue to have a chance. I think this is how America grew very big, and that's what America is famous about. Um, Make it easier at the sort of the, the starting out level for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think giving everyone that chance. Yeah. You know, not not by giving them money, but I would say it would already be sufficient if we wouldn't make it deliberately difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so just stop putting barriers in the way. Yes. So, yeah. you know, let's not put... I, I mean, sometimes I understand where this comes from. Like, let's imagine, like you said, you, you left university, you had all these great ideas. And some people give up on these ideas really early, didn't yeah. they? Yes. They say, oh, we want to make the world a better place. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's probably fair to say most people have given up on them before they even graduate. <laughs> yeah, so some give up really early uh, and then they completely forget about it and then they are busy with children and, you know, paying up them, you know, paying for the mortgage, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, others might try for a little while and they may fail because yeah. it is very, very hard. And I would just ask anyone who has failed not to see it as a failure. It is not a failure because it is fantastically hard. Uh, as long as someone has tried, no matter for how long, even if it's only five minutes, great, you've yeah. tried. 
but please if you have let's not how can we not how can we call it if we don't want to call it failed if you have decided not to continue please don't make someone else's life harder just because you didn't continue yeah because i think this is what's happening sometimes i i see this happening if someone else seems to be more successful than you are you know don't make it hard for him yeah support him you know because it needs people working together on this and um otherwise yeah. it's not not going to happen and yeah. in another big issue i have seen when i founded this electric vehicle club in germany is say you've got 99 or 99.9% of the population at that time who drove a normal car probably even more than 0.9 yeah, yeah let's say and they didn't care at all about their emissions and their fuel consumption at that time that was 1998 and then you have this tiny group of you know environmentally conscious people driving an electric vehicle and they battle amongst each other against you know you shouldn't be driving this electric vehicle because it consumes a little bit more energy than my electric vehicle but someone bought a hybrid oh this is really bad you shouldn't be buying a hybrid you know you should be buying a bicycle you know so basically this tiny group so, which, like they're so obsessed with the idea of perfection yeah. yes that they can't actually have no impact yeah actually achieve yeah. a step forward yes and, so i think yeah. i think anyone who's doing a little bit better i mean even if someone says okay i buy, i bought the eco version of my Vauxhall Corsa not the power version great you know you've done something yeah it's it's, yeah. it's a step in the right direction we have to you know not unify but we have to um get the people together who who have thought about it yeah yes at least because they are far more people not even thinking about it or even deliberately saying well oh shit this green stuff is coming i better buy another v8 now because you never know whether i can have fun again in five years <laughs> <laughs> yeah last chance oh, okay yeah um but even there i mean people might buy a v8 if they say okay i've got this v8 i use it once in a month because i love it it's a, it's a toy yeah. it's a toy but all the rest of my life i'm using bicycle great they've thought about it yeah you know we i think we have to get people to start thinking about it start being interested in it uh and i think the industry has to pro provide means of stimulating that interest yeah uh, here are two examples for that i think toyota again has done a fantastic job with their display yes it you know you can have a competition yeah saying ah let's try and do regenerative braking as well as good as i can i get more stars yeah um i think this sort of things is really helpful uh, a negative example was our first electric vehicle that we bought this tiny one seat i mentioned yeah it had no display whatsoever just speed and how full is my battery and i thought this is wrong because people who buy this sort of technology they want to know what's going on you yeah. they're interested in what's going on you know how can i extend my range how do i have to drive yeah those early to... adopters are yes. really fascinated though yeah so this was one of my first developments at the time i developed something called elmen it was an electric vehicle why was it called elmen i don't know um but it was an open source project at the time um basically people could 
did the same thing. Yeah. And there were many people then putting it in, into their electric vehicles. And we even okay. had group evenings uh, on the weekends where we started, I showed people how to solder and how to make stuff. And we developed, make these elements and put them into our vehicles so that we would get at least, uh, you know, what's my current, uh, it's not fuel consumption, there's energy consumption yeah. you know, per kilometer and stuff so that they could optimize their driving style. Um, and so that, that was a negative example, I think, for the same, yeah. Yeah. same topic. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I think information is very important and there's a lack of information nowadays. I mean, if you want to buy an eco-friendly car, which one would you buy? Nowadays, it's a bit more obvious. You can buy any electric car. They're all quite eco-friendly, obviously. Um, but if you wanted to buy a normal car, it's difficult yeah. to work that out. There's no... I mean, this is something, for example, the government could be doing, in my opinion. Why do I have to buy a witch magazine, which is more or less the only test comparison magazine I can go to, um, if I just wanted to buy a good product? I think... It could be a service the, 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 uh, uh, the government could at least be supporting so that I can get this magazine for free or the information for free yeah. presented in a nice way because this is what democracy is all about, making the right decisions by many people, but that requires information presented in, an, uh, in a nice way so it's easy to uh, absorb. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that probably, that probably ties in these days with sort of open data and um, you know governments just opening up mm. data that they have in formats that mean that even if they're not going to do it make it accessible so that you know a developer can can go take that data for for free and yeah. and put that online display it and and other people can then find it and there are some cases of the government doing that in a few sort of pilot projects but um, I think we need a lot more of it because the government does have so much data on stuff that yeah. would be useful. And it would um, probably be a relatively cheap service. I mean, if you compare it with all the money that is pumped into innovation, uh, it, it costs the taxpayer a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and these projects are really, really slow and they, the overheads are phenomenal uh, and the output is probably not very good for how much it costs the taxpayer, yeah. uh, actually. Um, and in other areas, I think the government is trying to break up status quo, which I mentioned earlier, the status quo is one of the issues, I think, for not making any changes. Um, uh, they are trying to break up status quo, for example, you know, inheritance taxes, I think, designed to, well, maybe they haven't thought that much about it and they just want some income stream, this is what some people say, but I think it's also designed to, to break status quo. But it, it comes with lots of problems because, say, if you are investing in a sustainable way because you want your family to be successful, like, you know, like Toyota, for exa example, did as a family business, yeah. yes, then what's wrong about it? Why should they be paying, what's the tax rate now, inheritance tax, 45% or something in that order? Because you can't really afford to pay that if you have a business. If yeah. You, if you think yeah, about yeah. REAP systems now, we are building up this business I mean, we don't have kids, uh, I have to say, maybe fortunately. Uh, but obviously you build up the business because you want to pass it then on maybe to your family. And uh, you've got to make sure that 
your family is then capable of running that business in a sustainable way. And I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong about this. And Toyota yeah. has done exactly that. Bosch has done the same thing. Why on earth does the government then want to take forty percent of the value of that business? Because where's that money going to come from? Yeah, yeah. You know who can pay for these forty-five percent? And that then impacts selling on half the, of the business, business and uh, yeah. the staff that work for the business and the customers that so, take value from that business. So, so. Yeah, so, the, so they invent something where they can break the status quo, but then of course it's causing lots of issues somewhere else, and then they've got to invent some really complicated mechanisms of allowing a business like, well, there is not really Bosch, it's not a UK company, but in Germany you've got the same problem, but a company like Bosch to continue to employ thousands and thousands of yeah. people and operating. But a lot of these rules are sort of one-size-fits-all sledgehammers exactly. that yeah. that actually, okay, they might work in a sort of standardized case, yeah. but but then there's lots of lots of use cases where actually they're, they're inappropriate. Yeah, so I think um, instead of doing this sort of complicated mechanisms, and the tax system is fantastically complicated, that's why we need all these accountants and so on and so forth, as much as I like our accountant, it is an overhead, yeah. you know, which to be paid for the time that goes into this is is and it uh, is quite high and it takes away the focus from what we should be doing so you're once a year you're focusing on okay how can we most tax efficiently reinvest or now buy some stuff so that the profit isn't too high and you're putting the business at a risk at that time because ideally you have a reserve as a business yeah but in order to build up a reserve i got to make a profit first if i make a profit i pay a lot of tax so i get penalized for trying to build a foundation and grow my business. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. I mean, I think everyone who runs a business experiences that, that, yeah. that you're always trying to navigate the system to, and, and jump through hoops. First of all, just not to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then secondarily to actually, you know, make a profit and be able to continue and grow the business um, on an ongoing basis. And, and like you said, you know, you're paying for services like accountancy, which, yeah. um, and, and to some extent, you know, legal advice and so on. That yeah. Some of it's useful, but a lot of it is really just because you kind of have no choice and it is a tax. It is a tax. And, and um, there, there is, a, I think, a very good uh, business consultant in Germany. Uh, his name is Reinhard Sprenger, and he, I got interested in his stuff because his, his first book was about motivation. And then he wrote many, many other books, which are yeah. all very interesting, thinking quite a lot outside the box. Um, and, and, and one of the books is about the trust system. If we want to live a life without any trust, we will be absolutely stuck in overheads, right? Yeah. Just making sure nothing can go wrong, everything is controlled, uh, you know, penalized, and everyone follows the rules. Um, and I think at the moment we are heading that way a little bit. And this is why the tax system becomes very inefficient. Basically, there are people doing bad stuff. But if we design the system around the few people who are doing bad stuff, then we end up with a system where everyone is doing bad stuff because the system is designed for people who want to do bad things. Yeah. The system got to be designed for people and trusting that people want to do good business. Yeah, and that the majority of people do. And the majority, yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy otherwise. If you... And it's very expensive to run and operate that system. So, you know, so here we go. So 
if there is status quo, if some people are passing on lots of money to their children and they keep messing things up, fine, you know, just that that's going to happen. Yeah. We can't fully stop it. We should be focusing on the people that are trying to do good business. And I think this is how our conversation started at the moment. This is very, very difficult yeah. because the system is trying to stop people who are doing bad business. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. unfortunately also stopping people who are doing good business. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And, and not necessarily even stopping <laughs> all the bad business. So. No, it's not stopping so the it, bad business kind because of a... they know how to do it. Uh, and, and They so know how to <laughs> find the loopholes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Because they don't have to focus on adding value. Yeah. So they focus on finding the loopholes. Yeah. Whereas I should be focusing on... You know, making at the moment hybrid drive systems for the boats, for example, and not focusing on how can I do this most tax efficiently and yeah. not getting penalized by uh, by God knows what. Another big issue I came across are insurances, actually, because um, and banks, um, so the normal finance methods, because they are sub automatically supporting status quo because everything that has got a lot of. Um, Well, for anything they've got data, yeah, they can give you a price, and yeah. it's usually quite low unless the data show there's something very risky. The fewer data they got, the less likely they are gonna insure it or give you. Or, or yeah, they won't do it, or they'll they charge you a, a lot for it. So I remember uh, my first days of running Reap Systems. We wanted to find an insurance, and I thought it's a no-brainer because, like everyone else, I. You know, to find a car insurance isn't that difficult, yeah. for example. So I, I assumed it would be similar for business insurance. And uh, I had to find that I came across some very arrogant people who said, hmm, nah, they didn't even quote us. Right. Yeah. So they wouldn't even come along for a meeting because it's an hour of their time. Yeah. Obviously, with our turn turnover of £5,000 a year, whatever <laughs> we had in the first year. Then they just it think didn't it's not look that interesting. So, yeah. uh, so I think we were actually quite lucky to find a really good um, insurance broker who has been supporting us since. Uh, but now, in hindsight, I understand it was actually his investment. You know, he believed in me. Yeah. Because when he came along first to spend an hour of his time, plus driving, you know, the amount of business I could offer to him was virtually nothing. Yeah, but he could see the potential that he could your see the business could grow. And, yeah. He was happy to invest his time. And um, and I think this is something every entrepreneur has to bear in mind. You know, you can't take anything for granted. You will yeah. have many people who either believe in you or don't. And if they don't, you, you won't be able to have any business. Yeah. Um, I think with banks, it's more difficult nowadays because the big banks, they there's nobody making any decision we, we don't even have a bank manager anymore they've been made redundant we've basically been it's just a removed. sort of computerized it's, decision making system yeah yeah um so it's so, so there are some reasons why it's difficult um to do sustainable innovation but yeah i think any entrepreneur would agree that to start a business is already very very difficult and the chances of success are I think this, the chances of survival are about one to ten. The chances of real success are very small, and this is f why 
often investors, or, or this is why business agents or any investor really wants a really large return on investment because it's a high risk for them. Yeah. They're not running the business themselves. So they're not really that much in control. And you just got to say a wrong word when you're talking to a customer. You can mess up everything and they can't yeah. stop it. Um, so that explains why business angels always want a really high cut. Um, so I can understand that. But of course, for any sustainable innovation, you can't really have this big cut. And the reason for that is that sustainable innovation, my definition of that is that you are replacing existing technologies with something that is more sustainable. What we don't want to do is we don't want to invent new technologies because I think we already got enough stuff. Yeah. Yes, and, and some other people are inventing new things all the time because this is what the normal innovation is all about. Um, but I think we have enough stuff and uh, I didn't want to add any to that, so I wanted to make the stuff that we've got more sustainable. And I, th I would call that sustainable innovation. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty with that, of course, is that you are immediately competing with something that is already around, uh, is made in high volumes, is available at low prices, everyone knows how it works, and everyone actually likes it. Everyone liked the car as it was. Yeah, was and they, no they already have certain expectations in terms of performance and price yes. and so on. Especially price, yeah. performance, quality, all the expectations are there. It's in full-scale production. Uh, and I have tried convincing car manufacturers for many years to do something and do this and do that. And um, they don't, you know, they either do something properly or not. Yeah. Uh, this is what most businesses do. Someone said businesses are designed to keep ideas and people out. You know, they've got a big firewall, try and make sure that they're not doing anything they don't want to do. Uh, so they won't do it. Yeah. So whatever Elon, Elon Musk did with his Tesla, I think, is fantastic. Uh, because it has really changed the perception of the electric vehicle. Um, when I ran around back in 1998 and 2003 and so forth, talking about electric vehicles, People, in their mind, they had a milk float and a Sinclair C5. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hear Americans often saying, you know, that electric car means golf cart. To them. Golf cart, yeah. yes. So and that obviously puts it into a certain bracket, not very sexy, and so people wouldn't buy it. And he really turned that around. Yeah. And I think the only reason why, uh, I mean, he, he he's a very shrewd entrepreneur. I mean, great stuff. And I think he likes the thrill of doing things where everyone else says this is impossible you know yeah, you, you, yeah. you can't take the banks on you know you can't take the car manufacturers on but he does and yeah. it, it's great and I think it's it's um, <clears throat> it's also a lot of inspiration for people to do it and um, I mean he, he um, but I think for the electric vehicle he, he used his own money even though it was 200 million yes so his first couple of ventures were software so effectively yeah. you know you can start it with nothing if you if you know what you're doing yes um, in theory at least in theory yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, which so you know you made a lot of money out of Zip2 and PayPal yeah. but but starting a car company that needs yeah there's no getting around it that needs serious money but I think I think the only reason well, one of the reasons why Tesla works and I think will work is because he took his own money yeah he knows himself, he can trust himself, he's got the vision, and often a vision is very difficult to communicate. The vision itself may be easy to communicate, but how you ended up with that vision in order to convince someone that that is a good vision yeah. is very difficult to communicate, and I have always struggled in doing that. 
people just lost me somewhere. They said, well, I don't know, why should we be making electric cars? And I think for him it was possible to do this because it was his own money. If he had gone to an investor and say, oh, I've got this idea here, no matter how well you present it, you would always fail at that point when they asked, you know, what's your market size and when is it going to happen and yeah. how, how on earth do you want to compete with the existing car manufacturers? I think this is where they, you would lose them. You would, they would say, forget about it. Because when you, no when you look back to the beginning of Tesla, you'd say that, well, everything they said they were going to do was impossible. You know, yeah. to start a car company from nothing. Impossible. And, yeah. yeah. And I have a few friends working for, you know, VW and Audi in Germany, and they, they've they spent all their life on some tiny detail, and they are so convinced that it is impossible for someone to copy it because they spend all their life on this detail, and it's this massive amount of information in the car companies. And I thought it was impossible, but I think Tesla has shown that it isn't impossible. Yeah. Uh, also, Toyota has shown many years ago that it wasn't impossible to become world's number one car manufacturer yeah. from nothing, although Ford was already big when they started. Yeah. And I think what we might be seeing is that the Chinese are going to show us that... Yeah, I, I think that's something a lot of people <laughs> can't see coming. I um, think, you know. But I, I, I do know how much the Chinese are investing in... Uh, renewable energies in electric yeah. vehicle technologies in battery technologies yeah. uh, because they know they have to yeah yeah and it's interesting actually I mean even now um, BYD which I'm sure you know mm -hmm. you know they're a Chinese company which is now selling vehicles here there's buses in London BYD buses electric buses in London they've just opened a factory in California you know so yeah. So they're doing things ahead of us and, and selling back yeah. to us, which I think we're, we're maybe in the West a little bit arrogant that we think that our technology is always the best. And, and I think this arrogance is, is very dangerous because, um, um, I mean, I, li I like the Chinese. I've been to China and they are, you know, they are funny and good to be with, etc. Um, but every culture is very close to itself first. Yeah, yeah of course. Yes. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the way we have been treating, I mean, our Western cultures, I say European cultures now. We, we are still before the vote, so we can say Europe <laughs> here. Um, if you see how we treat other countries, then you'd say, well, this is actually quite shit for them. Uh, for example, I've got lots of connections in Brazil, uh, my grandfather started a business in Brazil uh, many years ago, tier one supplier to the automotive industry. They have been struggling uh, because what they make will not be required anymore in a few years. Um, unfortunately, my grandfather has died many years ago and isn't around anymore. And the business isn't, you know, I've got virtually no connection to that business yeah, anymore. Yeah. But I visited them and I wanted to help them a little bit and help myself as well by introducing, let's say, hybrid buses in Sao Paulo, yeah. which would make a lot of sense uh, because Sao Paulo is very, very polluted and and they, and they just had um, some big events or are having. Uh, and I thought that would be a good opportunity. Um, but I found out that is virtually impossible because in Brazil, they just make this stuff. 
Right. Okay. The innovation is coming from the European companies yeah. and the U US companies. So like, you know, VW, Fiat. The innovation got to come from there. If the Brazilians were trying to do the innovation themselves, they will be threatened to, uh, basically, they would say, well, you know, then we can't really buy from you, can we? Yeah. They're deliberately stopping them to innovate. And they have too much of a dependency to be able to take and, that And there's too much of a dependency to risk that. So they decided that, you know, they, they can't really mess around with the um, existing industry, with the status quo, because they've got to pay all their big bills yeah. for all their employees and yeah, so forth and so forth. Uh, because you can't build up big reserve, reserves thanks to the tax system. Um, so, you know, there are some closing circuits, hopefully, in this discussion here. Um, and so, so the, you know, so this is what European countries are doing and companies are doing in order to yeah. keep our own jobs nice and safe and warm, yes, so that we can have all a nice life. But somewhere else in this world, someone is suffering. Yeah. And we don't know this. You only find out when you want to do something and go somewhere and say, well, it should be possible, let's do this. But you're stuck, you know, you, you, you can't, um, can't do it. Now, taking this back to the Chinese... If this world starts turning around that we are not really doing the innovation here anymore, uh, then the Chinese are doing the innovation, what are we going to do? That's the big question. Isn't, isn't it? it? Where do we, where, think, and this comes back to what you're saying about adding value. You know, what are we then going to do? What are we adding? You know, I, th I think we will, because we cannot just sell stuff. That doesn't work. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we can't just patent things here. Uh, stop everyone else in Europe or in the UK making the stuff I've just invented and I import it from China, sell it on here because from time to time we also got to sell something back to them. Yeah. yeah but what's the, I know what it is at the moment. At the moment it's mainly uh, um, um, making them pay lots of money for being at a UK university. <laughs> but that's a short-lived... Yeah, <laughs> that's, <a> short <laughs> that's not a long-term that's not a That's not a long-term solution, I think. Um but if we are not careful, then we are not leading innovation anymore. I think we should be democratizing this. So, you know, we should be allowing people in Brazil to innovate, yeah. for example. Um, I think the best people should innovate. It doesn't matter where they are from. Yeah. Um, but this whole globalization is there. Uh, no matter how much some people think, uh, yes, let's leave Europe and let's leave the world, ideally. Um, we have the globalization, um, and uh, I think we, we should try to make the best out of it yeah. by working together. And the, there are some platforms nowadays through the World Wide Web that allow us to do a lot. And I love what, as I said, you know, what um, uh, Change.org, for example, um, have done. They're fantastic platforms. And also, I think the crowdfunding platforms are a very good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're really starting to change things because there's a lot of small businesses now that have yeah. really good ideas and there's customers at the other end who, who want those ideas. Um, but in a conventional sort of scenario, they wouldn't be able to get from point A to point B. No. Um, but, and crowdfunding well, really... At a, at a much higher cost. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas crowdfunding, it, it's almost... It's marketing and funding and market research sort of all rolled into one because yes. you know yeah. if people want it they'll put in money um, and 
at the same time they're sharing it so you're getting yeah. sort of viral marketing at the same time so it's, yeah it's so good. I think what would be nice is is actually a community of people who want to do something who can share ideas help each other and I had a had an idea down this line many many years ago where I thought well one issue in business is trust yeah because if you trust someone you can just give them a phone call and say yeah and you know it's going to happen you know they're not going to rip you off yeah if we could establish you know maybe someone is going to do it someone who's listening to this because I'm pretty busy at the moment I have time <laughs> for it um you know, it's almost like a sustainability stamp on your business saying, right, you know, we, we follow Toyota principles, you know, we want to do sustainable things, we don't want to rip off customers, we want to add value, because, and then you go and you see, okay, they are, they are part of this group, I can yeah. trust them, I'll do business with them, I know how they tick, it's an easy decision. Yeah. Uh, and also then maybe have uh, regular meetings and start having a community of people that sharing knowledge and experiences and yeah where, where business starts to be fun I mean another observation I've got in life is that people separate business from private life yeah and I think that doesn't make much sense because this is not what the human race was designed to do I mean business is a great part of your life isn't it you spend well in the last weeks we spent about 16 hours working every day and, and the weekend so other people spent maybe 8 hours working a day but it is 8 hours prime time of your life yeah and so it isn't business and private isn't separate it is part of everyone's life and I always was always hoping I could start a business where we can generate some direct quality of life so yeah. people perform People have fun at the same time and feel good and add value. Uh, and I think that would be fantastic to achieve. We are still a little bit struggling with this um, because of some things I don't want to discuss now because that would definitely take it too far. Um, <laughs> but it's got to do with the education system yeah. <clears throat> a little. Um, but is that coming back into... Um, sort of the employment side of things you were saying earlier that yeah. it's, it can be quite hard to find people who actually want to work on projects that are going to make the world better um, and actually accept that there is a compromise that they need to make in terms of their salary for example um, but do you think that there are things you can do as a company to sort of slightly get around that by creating a good quality of life and a great working environment where you're going to enjoy yourself at work and work on something meaningful. So it's not just about eight hours a day, I'm just there to make money. It's No. Yeah, I think I think firstly it's got to have a meaning, Yeah. the business. And it would have been very important, um, but we didn't do this, uh, before we started the business to work out what REAP Systems is about. You know, what is yeah, your yeah. business about? And to communicate this in very simple terms... Um, so that when you then employ people, they know what you're about and they come to you because they want to work for you yeah. and not because, oh, they, I need a job yeah. or, oh, oh, I haven't got a job, you know. So, um, And we made that mistake um, and I found it very difficult to distill this. Um, but I am, I am hoping if we can create a better community of friends and people working together, uh, that it's it's maybe more easy because for an outsider it's easier. Yeah, you know, if 
you're inside you and you've got all these complicated thoughts in your head. Yeah. Sometimes you don't see the wood for trees, but someone outside might just listen to you and say, well, this is what you're all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah? completely. And uh, instead of doing this, I paid about £3,000 for marketing inside. And he did a fantastic job. He distilled it into yeah. this in pursuit of a better way. You know, it's, yeah. it's great. Uh, and it certainly, certainly was worthwhile the time and, 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 and probably the money if you have it. Yeah. But when you start a business, I mean, we didn't even have £10 initially. Not yeah, to speak, 3000 You've got to do everything yourself. Yeah, so... Yeah. Uh, and it comes down to having the right sort of friends and and families. And um, I think when my mother died with cancer, I at that time I looked a lot into, you know, how to overcome cancer, how to overcome uh, uh, diseases. And it's all about, you know, finding out what you are about yeah. and doing that. And and to a certain extent, you have to drop maybe some friends and you might have to drop some family members uh, and work with those people you want to deal with yeah you know that's I think that that's very important um, and I think I, 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 I am hoping this this can work for business so I am seeing that now the the people we are starting to employ now they come to reap because of who we are yeah so I think it's going in the and right. And then because of that, hopefully that starts yeah. to build a culture within It, it the starts to build a culture. I, yeah. I, I still believe the education system got to be reformed, um, though, because um, people are quite old yeah. when they leave university, uh, you know, 25, 26. Yeah. Um, we should remember that human beings were only designed to survive for 30 years initially you know most people only got 30 31 years and then they died yeah nowadays people get much older nowadays but to have someone coming out of the education system at the age of 25 or 26 and not knowing what life is about is is a big mistake yeah because they think they deserve so and so much money per month and often that's because that's what they've been told by That's what the they've university. been told uh, before going to university or at the university. They've also been told that they are the top of the top because they've got a university degree. For some reason, people are forgetting that I think the government's target was having 80% with the university degree, so it's not automatically top of the top yeah. anymore. Uh, so, you know, you're just one of everyone. Um, and unfortunately, they don't really have much... Um, life experience or business experience and it is very hard for a small business to get them there yeah you know yeah. we are not uh, uh, Rolls Royce who can afford to do a two-year training program yeah you know they got to come here and start hit the ground running really but yeah and, and start making contribution uh, within a couple of months or fast ideally and ideally not screw up things yeah. too much because that's the risk the risk is they are all making a contribution but they can make some really big mistakes somewhere and then that can cost you a lot of money yeah. uh, and then you make a loss because the especially on sustainable innovation the profit margins are tiny yeah yeah Yeah. in the car industry typical profit margin is in the order of 8% which is really small so Especially when you consider that it's also an industry that requires a huge amount of investment yes. in machinery and, and innovation plant, yeah. and R&D yeah. 
and you know you got to pay for all of this with these eight percent. I mean, this is what people don't realize. So, the 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 automotive industry, in my opinion, earns a great respect, or actually any established industry. I mean, there are some that don't earn my respect, but that's something else. Um, <laughs> that's another conversation. <laughs> that's something else. But uh, uh, but generally, it's um, it's a you know this well-established. Uh, my, um, how would you say industries yeah. it's hard to break in with yeah. something sustainable yeah. people don't want change um, like I've um, in the ports for example there are straddle carriers they lift up a container yeah. well they've got a big generator about 1000 horsepower generator wow. uh, everything is electric so these are what we've got over in Southampton yeah in Southampton yeah. any port you know, I've got many of them and They've got electric motors lifting the container. These electric motors are using electricity from a diesel generator yeah. because the straddle carriers are on rubber wheels, rubber tires, so they're not on on the mains. Yeah. Yeah? So they need their own generation. So electricity is generated with the generator. They use it, for example, to drive around and lift the container. When they let the container down, they use braking. So the electric motors then go into generator mode. Yeah. And then it's kind of slowing the uh, container down yeah. when it comes down. But now guess what with this energy is done. <laughs> so we, basically every time the heavy container is coming down, they release all the energy they needed to lift it up in first place. Yeah. That is actually with a very good efficiency because there's not that much friction in, the, in that system. It's straight up and yeah, down. Yeah, and actually there's um, the... I've forgotten what it's called, but there's a new tower they're building in Brighton um, yeah. it's you know a viewing platform and it goes up yeah. I think it's electric it goes up and then on its way back down yeah. it uses regenerative braking to store energy and yes. send it back up again so the same kind of principle you'd have thought should be should be yes I think trains do regen braking because they're connected to the grid so you yeah. use the grid as a big storage mechanism yeah. uh, but the straddle carriers what are they doing with, with it what do you think <laughs> I don't know. You don't want to know. I don't want to They've know. They've got big resistors on big heat sinks yeah. and they burn it. They just turn it to heat. Yeah, they turn it into heat. So it's a no-brainer, in my opinion, to make them hybrid, isn't it? Because yeah. it's already an electric system yeah. and all they need is a battery that stores the energy. Um, and, and there were a few companies doing this. There is a very successful uh, project, obviously, as usual, in, in Japan. Um, um, so we know how much energy you can save. Yeah. And I calculated, for example, for one port close by, that they would sa be saving about one million pounds in terms of diesel every year. Wow. That's so huge. why are they not doing it? That's the big question, right? That's the mystery. It's not a mystery. I've asked, you know, and, and, the, and the answer is simple. We don't know what's going to come next year. Right, so they don't want to invest a lot of money up front. Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a confidence problem. Yeah. Investment is a confidence problem. They don't know, are they going to, you know, uh, uh, is, is the port going to be reduced in size? You know, will the ships go to another port next year? And for that reason, they don't invest. So it's basically it's a zero-risk yeah. approach yeah. to this. Uh, and they've been doing this now for 15 years. They don't invest in buildings either, so etc., etc. Um, it, it really doesn't seem to be a business, in my opinion, because business is about risk. Yeah. 
And if someone isn't taking risks, it's not worth the business. But there doesn't seem to be much of a competition. Well, the, actually, there is competition. That's what they are afraid of. That's why they're not investing. But they're not in... Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of back to front because they're, they're afraid of the other ports or the other countries um, yeah. where things may go. And, um, or I guess potentially even other modes of transport. Um, yeah. But, you know, but eventually got... they're going to decay if they don't. Yes. Invest in themselves. Yeah. So, but they've got employees as well, as well you know, so it's not just one person making that sort of decision. And, yeah. and, and, and here's maybe something I would like to say, which is also coming from Reinhard Sprenger, which is the business consultant. It's all about self-responsibility. Yeah. You know, if everyone is responsible for what happens at your workplace, sometimes I, you know, we call up a supplier and then people start to apologize and say, yeah, but I'm only the secretary here and I don't really, you know, this is not my fault. And then I say, but you work for that business. Yeah. You know, you get your money from this business, so you must be happy with it. You can't just say, oh, this is a shit business and I'm just the secretary. If you're not happy with where you work, change that. Yeah. This is yeah. what safe responsibility and, um, is about. Yeah, and every it's not and it's not just a case of I'm just the secretary because actually no. the reason you're there is because you you add value to the yeah. to the business and you add value to customers. Yeah. Um, otherwise, there'd be no point. You so I think we all can do something about not only about the sustainability but also about our own unhappiness. Yeah. Which is what self responsibility is. So don't don't be unhappy and continue. If you're unhappy, change it. Yeah. Um, or or even yeah, as Vanita was always saying, you know, if you're, yeah. you're not a tree. If you're not happy, just just get up and move. You know? Change it. I know it's yeah. it's not easy to change, but there are people who have done it, and just talk to them, uh, join one of the groups, and then it will be easier, I think. And if more people do it, it will definitely be easier. Yeah. The more people just stick to what they do because they don't like changing it, yeah. the more difficult it is for everyone to change it. But the bigger appeal is, if you decide not to be self-responsible and stick to your job, do support others. Who are making the big jump? Because it yeah. is, it is a jump. If you, if someone is leaving his job because, you know, they want to do something more meaningful or something more sustainable, um, you know, I think it deserves support from others. Yeah, and it's it's risky, it's scary, and um, and those people need encouragement. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, we don't have kids, uh, and one of the reasons for that was that I said, well, I want to take risks in life, um, and uh, I don't really want my children to suffer from <laughs> me taking this risk and working crazy hours. Um, and, you know, we have lots of friends who have got lots of children and I understand they cannot take the same risks yeah. I can take. Yeah. But it was my conscious decision. It's not yeah. that. And, and hopefully it was their con conscious decision to have children. Um, but they shouldn't be stopping us now. You know, they sh yeah. I, it would be nice if they could be supporting us and saying, it's great what you do because... What we do is supposed to be, uh, it's probably their children are going to benefit from what we are trying to achieve. Yeah. It's because it's their future. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we, shall we wrap up with you quickly just explaining what um, Project Venice is and yeah. where people can find information about your crowdfunding campaign? Yes, I mean, we have um, worked a lot in the electric vehicle industry, supported lots of projects in the past, usually work as a supplier for others who are, you know, running projects. Um, last year, I thought, well, let's do our own project. Um, 
because we understand a lot about the whole hybrid system uh, and in the marine markets uh, I think the uptake of clean technologies has been very very slow yeah. you know we see the start to see the successes in the automotive markets now uh, but the marine market is lacking far behind and it's the pollution from boats is actually much worse than we think um, for example Southampton is one of the most polluted cities in the whole of the UK it's actually more polluted than what the World Health Organization is recommending. Right. Uh, many people don't know this. And it is, um, to, to a great extent, this is because of the uh, cruise ships, of yeah. course, uh, and, and, and boat traffic. If you think about cities like Venice uh, or any water city uh, who uh, that have got thousands of boats with diesel engines running around, and these engines don't have particle filters, these engines don't have... Uh, catalytic converters, you know, they, they pump out uh, often even heavy diesel, the larger ships, right. which is particularly, you know, full of sulfur, etc. Yeah. Um, so what comes out of their exhaust is is really bad yeah. and it's polluting the city. So, and um, in the marine market or for boats, the hybrid system or sometimes sometimes the electric system, electric, pure electric system, like for Amsterdam, pure electric boats make a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, for Venice, uh, hybrid boats make a lot of sense because you have got some faster and longer runs and that's where the batteries would then have to be far too big. Uh, and that's where the pollution is not such a big issue because it's not in the middle of the town. Um, but then you have also some runs around the little canals in the town where you definitely don't want noise or pollution. Yeah. Next to the, you know, imagine there's this young couple, romantic day out on a gondola and, you know, someone singing in, in the back of the gondola. And then there's this stinking taxi boat right next <laughs> to you, switching, you know, switching their diesel on, which isn't tuned nicely and puts out a lot of pollution in, into your face. Um, so you can imagine this. And so we thought it's worthwhile developing a drop-in hybrid solution um, because boat builders are usually quite small businesses. They cannot afford you know, large R&D expenses or big research projects. They yeah. buy stuff in, they got to put it into the boat. It's got to be really simple. Uh, most of the hybrid systems that have happened were big government-funded projects with millions of pounds uh, converting one or two vessels uh, with lots of research elements, certainly not plug-and-play. So we want to develop a plug-and-play hybrid engine which can be put into any boat with a stern drive. We'll start in Venice uh, because there are more than 20,000 boats around in that area and it just makes a lot of sense um, also in terms of publicity. Um, but as I've mentioned before, it's a massive risk for us to do this project, it costs us a lot of money, uh, um, and and this is why we went for a crowdfunding campaign. So it's possible to support our project. Uh, there are some great rewards. If you're not happy with the rewards, you can send me an email. We can develop a special <laughs> reward for you that suits you better. Uh, it's also important to get the message out to everyone why this technology helps and how much it can help. This is what this project is about. We are going to showcase this technology uh, to the local authorities in Venice yeah. so that they can understand the benefits of the technology so that they can tune their emission regulations in yeah. the future towards something that is firstly achievable 
but secondly is also challenging enough to not keep doing diesel engines yeah. um, we also proved the reliability of the system because the marine market is very slow in uptake uh, because they are very concerned about the reliability uh, and, and is so that mainly a safety thing it's a safety thing. You don't want to be out at sea and your engine doesn't start. Yeah. And, and with a hybrid system, the engine will be off most of the time and it only starts when you need it. Um, and there's a lot of new stuff which they haven't heard of. Yeah. So they don't want to put that into a boat. There are many applications for hybrid technologies in the marine markets, wind, wind farm support vessels, survey vessels, pilot boats, uh, police boats, you know, that are loitering for most of the time yeah uh, diesels are on all the time not doing anything uh that's not good for the diesel it costs them a lot in terms of maintenance and fuel the maintenance yeah. cost is actually the highest cost which we can reduce with the hybrid system but nobody's going to put this hybrid stuff into their boat um even if you give it to them for free because they are afraid of the reliability so we need to showcase the technology not only in terms of showing the benefits and similar to the electric car we have to take people on board of the boat yeah. and show what it's like when you cruise around without noise yeah it makes such a difference uh, but we also got to showcase the reliability of the system so we are developing a system that is very close to market it's not a research system i would still class it as a prototype because it's the first one uh, we are designing and making uh, but in all the design it is designed for manufacture we are um, really um, and honestly heading for making it um, produceable and as low cost as possible. Um, so the risk for any normal investor or business angel is too high. They would ask for a too high return on investment. It's also difficult to actually see how we fit into the system of the distribution chain. Yeah. Uh, we work with an engine manufacturer at the moment who's very keen to work with us on this. This is high and high. Uh, I had a very good chat with the CEO and uh, you know we, we seem to feel like, yeah, let's do this. Um, but they use a distribution chain and how would we fit into that chain is a bit unclear because yeah. if we are in the chain, we would have to add a profit margin and so the product becomes too expensive. If we are outside the chain, we would be circumnavigating the existing distribution chain and upset them, obviously. We don't want that either. Um, so I think I see us as someone who wants to kickstart technologies and say, this is better, this is around, develop it to a certain extent, yeah. and then potentially uh, sell it on or help the other manufacturers to develop these technologies yeah. uh, once they see that, yes, this makes sense, uh, or once they have to. Um, but if they don't, then we still got the option to manufacture and sell ourselves. Yeah. But we've got to be open-minded. But it would be really nice if we could de-risk this whole thing at the moment because it's not feeling great. I am driving the business, uh, our business, um, you know, like a race car. I'm driving it really um, close to the edge uh, yeah. with this project. Uh, we just felt like it's worthwhile and I wanted to do something meaningful. Um, and I think it's a great project. There's a lot of information on the indiegogo crowdfunding site uh we also on our website we also have information and we have a newsletter we are posting on facebook uh, on twitter and on instagram um, we want to involve the public um, yeah. also in the technology so that people understand 
how does this technology work? You know, why is this good? Why don't you do pure electric? I don't mind these questions. Um, so, you know, people can connect with us on the social media. And I will it's do just Reap Systems, isn't it? Yeah, it's just yeah. Reap Systems, uh, Facebook. We've got Reap Systems, Twitter, also Reap Systems website. Uh, on Indiegogo, the project is called Project Dash Venice. So yeah. it's easy we'll to post a link up to that on uh, in the description. It's on your description. Yeah, um, yeah, that's great. And um, you know, so we, we are not a charity, so some people are always saying. Should I support a, something, you know, it's a profit organization, it's yeah. something bad. But I mean, if all businesses were bad, then we should seriously <laughs> rethink how our planet works at the moment. Because the business, as I said in the beginning, should all the business should be doing is adding value yeah. and organizing a bunch of people and making sure that everyone has got a good quality of life, yeah. you know, without doing, you know, with putting a lot of effort in. I mean, if whenever Reef System has been making uh, a profit in the past. I have to say, usually your military projects, actually, unfortunately. Yeah. But you know that that is what it is. Um, we have been reinvesting that. Uh, yeah. I get my satisfaction out of doing stuff. I don't get it out of having lots of money on my bank account. Yeah. That doesn't. I don't find that very exciting. Well, you wouldn't have started. I wouldn't have started this, this whole path. <laughs> of, uh... No. So. You know that that's that's my commitment. Um, if the crowdfunding campaign makes us five thousand pounds, great. I mean, we had three thousand something now. If it makes us hundred thousand, great. If it makes us two million, I'm not going to run away with it. There's a lot we can do. I've yeah. mentioned distracted carriers, and I can mention many many other projects that need somebody to start doing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and 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 show that. You know, either develop the technology or show the market what it can do. So, I'm hoping that Reap Systems could be the Kickstarter, yeah. because I don't want to get into the way of others, but I want to show them that there is a way of doing things in a better way. Yeah, yeah. So really pioneering things. And, yeah. And I'm I'm sorry for the noise in the background. Someone is working on the bolt here. Uh, so <laughs> I don't want to stop very them working. Noisy <laughs> um, it's a noisy day. Yeah. Okay, no, that's great. Thank you very much, Dennis.